I think to make almost any Christian nervous, the only thing you have to mention is evangelism and missions. Although believers certainly love Christ's body and the prospect of, of seeing the church grow, still the prospect of personally sharing our faith and contributing to the efforts of bringing new people to the church, well, that can feel really overwhelming for all of those except the most steeled in disposition. And I think on the other side of that, we also feel guilty that we feel that way. As if we are expected to be people of iron resilience, being fully equipped for spreading the gospel. As if coming to Christ means, well, now you are the fortress, in contrast to what we heard this morning. We hunker down, keeping our feelings of of hesitance and inadequacy really just bottled up, sometimes letting those secret fears keep us locked in inaction. And what I want to ask tonight is, does Matthew 28, 16 to 20, commonly called the Great Commission, Does it start that reaction? Or does it teach confidence, comfort, along with church growth? Did the Holy Spirit inspire this passage simply, simply to record Jesus' instruction and marching orders for the church to follow? Or was there something, not to the exclusion of that, but nonetheless far greater in view in these final words of Matthew's gospel. And I want to argue that you should begin to see Christ's final instruction here in this gospel as, well, really the great comfort. There is more, more to Jesus' message than that the church needs to end up in every people group. There's rich assurance for every believer in this passage, and the deeper point to consider beyond our calling to disciple the nations, as true and valid as that is, is that this passage prompts us to ask how we respond to the reality of Christ's resurrection. And so, our main point tonight main point is that the risen Christ makes his presence with his people known as they go about their vocations. The risen Christ makes his presence with his people known as they go about their vocations. And we're going to think about this in three points together. A surprising position, a surprising promise, and a surprising process. So three surprising things. Position, promise, process. Let's start with a surprising position. And likely, your attention, when we when we got to reading this last little bit of this text, locked in on, on in other versions, what are the familiar phrases? Go disciple the nations. Make disciples of all nations. Since that has been the heart cry, rightfully so, in many ways, 
the heart cry of Christian missions for a few centuries. But, but I wonder how well we know what's going on in the background. Right? There, Christ's words here are not disconnected from the context of meeting his disciples after his resurrection. And they are meant to encourage them so that they might properly respond to the reality of his resurrection. So, so Matthew 28, the, the chapter properly has Christ's resurrection, its effects, and our response in view. And the narrative's scope is about encountering the risen Christ. And so if we think about it, just in summary, if we think about in verses 1 to 10, Matthew recounted this this uh, instance wh- where where people are looking for Jesus to be dead and he's not. And then there is this repeated note that from the angel and from Jesus himself, Jesus' followers need to hear. In verses 5 to 7, the angel said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, why are you surprised at this? He told you he wouldn't be here. Come and see the place where he lay. Then quickly go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. So that's another repeated thing. There you will see him. And in verse 10, Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Don't be afraid because in this place people are going to see me. And the whole account then signals, right? There's two instances where the same thing is said. And the, the account is signaling that Christ followers need relief from fear. And their fear could have been about whether Christ rising was too good to be true. Maybe, maybe that story spread in verses 11 to 15 was just plausible enough to, to pick at even the minds of Jesus' closest followers. And so following directions from a man who, who was dead to go to Galilee, well, even that took some trust. And that background of, of, of that instruction, accompanied by an expected, or perhaps a, um, anticipated fearful reaction, prepares us to understand this great commission better. Because then we come to verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee. They did what they were told. To the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And so the disciples followed their instructions, going to Galilee, going up a mountain. Notably, mountains are the place where God meets with his people throughout the scripture. Certainly a point landing here in this moment after Christ's resurrection. And now the moment that because they'd been promised that they would see him. The moment that should have removed all fears and provide assurance was when the disciples saw the risen Christ. But what happened? What happened? Verse 17. 
And when they saw him, well, they worshipped. So far, so good. But some doubted. I wonder how often we pass over that little phrase. But some doubted. I think it's crucial, though. Why would the gospel tell us this? When the next thing coming is Christ's summons to disciple the nations. Now that summons is also often the most nerve-wracking of all Christian responsibilities. But what is the disciples' disposition that that prompted Jesus' commission? That prompted? He knows the hearts of men. He's responding. What is the disciples' disposition that prompted Jesus' commission? Uncertainty. They believed they were worshiping. But despite encountering the risen Christ, they themselves had lingering doubts. I think we might pause even here to reflect on what we might already learn. How, How many of us step right to the brink of our responsibilities in the Christian life, any of them, whatever they may be, and sense that supreme awareness of our inadequacy. How many of us consider any of our callings in our life of following Christ and flinch because we think certainly these things are too much for us. There is a simple question about how many followers of Christ today encounter the Lord Jesus and feel unsettled and feel inadequacy rather than feel comfort and grace. Maybe you feel that Christ demands more from you than he gives. Maybe you consider Christ and feel less assurance and help than expectation and doubt. And if that describes you, well, pause for a moment and realize that you are in the same position as the disciples looking the risen Christ directly in the face. Remember, believer, that God then used these men to spread his gospel throughout the known world of their day. And so the surprising position is that perhaps you find yourself alongside some of the most effective Christians ever and in need of the same words that they heard. This great commission. And that brings us to our next point. A surprising promise. Surprising promise. And I think one of the things that, that I'm up against here is that we so often become familiar with certain passages of scripture and, and we, we quit paying attention as we read. 
And I, I would even guess that some people are thinking, I know this passage, I know what he's going to say. I don't really need to tune in on this one. This is a softball. Sorry, that's an American metaphor. Fill in the blank. Easy sport. I imagine that some of you have locked in on your favorite or at least your most known phrases here in Jesus' final teaching in Matthew, likely assuming you've got that grasp of their exhaustive meaning and the coming, coming explanation. And let's, let's just see if we can't find something unexpected here. Because I think, I think one of the things is that too often we shave off Jesus' first words and go straight to, as you're going, make disciples. But isn't it, isn't it really significant that Matthew, now if you think about the narrative, Jesus' quote ends the book. So there's a, a quotation mark at, at, at the very end of Matthew's gospel. And so, isn't it significant that the last comment that Matthew makes as the narrator in the whole of the gospel was that some of these disciples doubted. That's the last thing that he contributes besides a quote from Jesus. They were uncertain, even as they they confronted the risen Christ. And Jesus, as always, knowing men's hearts, responded to exactly that situation, to that situation of doubt. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why, why do you think that it is, that this is a significant opening to this so-called Great Commission? Because it shows us that this, this passage is, even as it is about that, it's less about our responsibility and more about assuring the people of Christ feeling overwhelmed in the face of what Christ will send them to do. In, in response to this situation of overwhelmed, defeated, confused disciples, Jesus says, I'm in charge of everything. And nothing happens anywhere, whether in heaven and on earth, that is not under my dominion. And you see how this absolute declaration of Jesus' power is the proper response to the disciples' doubt, right? You see how that's exactly the thing he should have said. They follow the king of everything. But I hope you you also see how it aimed to, to build up believers needing encouragement. And so the, the Great Commission, I mean, if you think, Really catch this. The Great Commission opens with a promise. A promise of Jesus' authority being wielded on behalf of doubting Christians. Now, in, in the most known section 
of this passage, we need, we need its connection to Christ's authority. We, we got the lesson about therefore this morning. Therefore, as you are going, disciple all the nations by baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The point is clear. Because, because Jesus is in charge, we make disciples. We must note how this passage's flow is not so much a starkly stated insurmountable challenge, but an obvious entailment rolling out of a starkly stated reality of Christ's unconquerable authority. The Great Commission is not an instruction to the crippled standing at the bottom of a mountain to sprint to the top, but to those who have the high ground standing on the mountaintop about what to do as they walk down. That's why the proper translation here is, as you are going. Right? It's a circumstance. While the church grows. What happened in the book of Acts? Did they make decisions? Or did Christ put them in places where Jesus puts the church, make disciples across the world, wherever you are? And we need to see then that the other side of what's actually a, a sandwich of, of promises, the first bread slice is that promise of Christ's authority, followed by that filling of of the call to disciple. And the final bread slice is is another promise at the end of verse 20. And so behold, I am with you every day until the age's completion. Now here's, here's the thing about this. This blessing results from carrying out that middle instruction. What do I mean and why does that matter? Notice notice here that the point is about what they will see. Behold, right? About what they will perceive. We find ourselves terrified of evangelism, frequently wanting confidence for it before before jumping into the task. But, but Jesus spoke to, to doubting Christians saying that when you go spreading the gospel, when, when the church goes about that action, that action results in you seeing that he is with you. Confidence doesn't proceed jumping into the Great Commission, but results from carrying it out. This doesn't seem like it'll work. Jesus told me to do it, though. And on the back end, well, it works. And I see in that that Jesus was with me. The church often feels weak, like the disciples, like the apostles. But it is... As 
we disciple the nations, that we see that Christ is daily, with the, the, the literal there is every day. Most, most English does it always. It's not, it's not a constant, it's a, every day. You find Jesus is with you newly, freshly, every day until he returns. We see, as we disciple the nations, that Christ is daily with us, near to his people throughout every moment of this age, exercising his authority to overcome our very deficiencies to bring about the church's expansion. The surprising promise is that the summons global discipleship is is more about assuring present believers than it is about bringing new believers into the fold. Because this is addressed to doubting believers. And it's a sandwich of promises. We have other places that tell us to go to spread the church. Our outreach... And this, the, the force of this passage of Jesus' address is that our outreach is more about our seeing Jesus be near to us than about what happens to those we try to reach. Which is exactly why we have to focus more on the task than on the results that we achieve. But that brings us to our final point. A surprising process. A surprising process. Because here what we need to do is, is close by trying to work out some ways that what we've considered so far um, can be incorporated into our lives practically. And, and the right way, I think, to, to unpack the, the way that I've explained this passage is to look for the ways that present believers find encouragement from it. I think one of the things I... This is really personal, but I think one of the things that we have to do here, that I want to do, is start by encouraging our new pastor, right? Andy, man, you come to London. This is a huge city. Lots of culture and challenges, and it, it might feel overwhelming to see all that there is to do here. If you have any doubts about that task, well, take heart, because London is smaller than the whole world. And Jesus promised his presence to those disciples who went about that task, right? The whole earth. And so we here today stand with them in having Jesus to assure us and give success to all that lays before you to do. And thankfully, Jesus gives us the method the process for accomplishing the task as, as the church. Verses 20, not, sorry, 19 and 20, that the, to disciple the nations by baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. The, the process of discipling the world then centers on just what we keep calling the ordinary means of grace. Brother, again, you need not be the most creative, most innovative, 
biggest personality or have superhuman skills. You need a fixed trust in Christ's promises to use his word, water, wine, and bread to build and bless his people despite our weaknesses as pastors. But that very point leads into encouragement for the rest of us, too. So often, Christians, when we think about discipleship, when we think about evangelism, we feel pressured to have an answer to every question that that unbelievers may have about their faith and the objections that may or may not come. And here we see that evangelism and global missions takes place under Christ's command by baptizing and teaching. Acts of the church as church. Actions of office bearers. Christ spoke to the apostles, not to just a lot of individuals. And so Christ has bound his purposes, the success, not not to what you can pull off, believer, but to what he's promised to do through the church. Now, each of us to to put pause on, on where some might run with that, each of us still has a role to play. And and here's the thing. Our, our primary contribution to evangelism, at least in terms of how we see this, this passage playing out, is courageously to invite people to church. Christ instituted the ordinary means of grace to reach the world, promising to use those means to that end. And so our primary goal should be to get our family, friends, and neighbors around those means that Jesus, in his infinite authority, promised to use to convert them. Now, here's the thing. I think some people are probably thinking, Harrison's trying to let us off the hook. I don't have that much to do. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to equip literally everyone to do evangelism. Because here's the thing, no no matter how much you know, no matter how much you understand, no, no no matter how bold you feel, how willing you are to speak. If we're thinking about giving an an account of the hope that's within us, everybody can say, look, I, I go to church, I go to this place every week, and they tell me good news that I believe. You can do that. Everybody can do that. Now, maybe you feel equipped to do more. Maybe you feel equipped to to talk about a lot of detailed things in the scripture. But what I'm saying is every believer is equipped to do the, the basic thing here of evangelism. That's ask people to come to encounter the means of grace. And so be encouraged, believer. Be encouraged that Christ has certainly not asked more of you than you can do. Often we demand more duties from ourselves, not in terms of personal holiness, but in terms of the deeds 
that constitute the Christian life, oftentimes we demand more of ourselves than Christ does. And I think the other big objection here, though, as we continue to pack this, the other big objection is, you're saying get people around preaching. Help them to see what's happening in the church. Well, that is just too simple, too basic. That is too plain as the means for God to reach this world. But the surprising process is that we have to trust what God has promised to use, not leaning on our own intuition and desires and believing that God will make his promised means powerful. And I want to I want to tie this to a wider relevance. Because I imagine some are are thinking, this is the week where we've all seen part of our continent blow up. And you've got a one-off sermon. And it's about this. This doesn't seem to tie. So let's let's think about that situation. And let's think about the plainness of what I've, I've argued that God has promised to use. And ask ourselves a, a simple question. Do we think that at this moment, believers in, in Ukraine presently have access to fancy productions and trendy gimmicks right now to attract people to church? Well, no. Obviously not. And given that, Do we think that God has left them without means to commune with him and spread the gospel even in the most dire situation? Certainly he's not. The prosperity gospel and and trendy church growth tactics are are the product of the comfortable West and they are for those who want to be entertained to death but provide no assurance and no help to believers in war-torn and bereft areas. But pastors and believers can take God's primary means of reaching the lost anywhere. God's primary means of reaching the lost must be something, must be something that can be implemented in every age and any place so that believers would be able to see that Christ is with us every day until this age's completion, apart from the circumstances. Not just when it's comfortable, not just when we have enough for a a fog machine and a projector, not just when we can afford the new sound system. Any circumstance, believers need to know that Christ is with them and have the means to be able to see that. And that is really important. Because listening to word about how the gospel will spread and how the church will grow requires more faith, more trust and dependence than leaning on man-made devices and tricks for for gathering a crowd. We're, we're about to sing 
We're about to sing about the church's response to God's missional calling. And the emphasis in that chorus that we're about to sing ought to be on, I will go if you lead me. I can't do it if you aren't leading. Full stop. We ought not to be enthused as if we're capable in ourselves. God will give success to those who depend on Him and His means, cherishing people in their heart for Christ's glory. And so we cling to God's instruction for our benefit, for the assurance of of believers in Ukraine, China, Afghanistan, every other suffering country, for the sake of God's renown amongst his people and amongst those who will become his people. Because God loves to work through unassuming means. Think think most prominently about your salvation. It, it does not seem obvious that a Jewish carpenter's death on a cross would bring about the forgiveness of your sin. And yet, although in an unassuming form, the fullness of deity dwelled bodily in that carpenter, since God's own Son is that Jesus Christ who came to save his people from our sin, dying for our forgiveness and leaving the church, leaving the church and her means of grace to distribute that rescue to others. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful that your word is boundless in depth, it's inexhaustible in meaning, We can always find new encouragement in it. And we pray that even though we've thought about what is probably a very familiar passage, that this would bring fresh bread into our hearts. That we might be fed spiritually by these new considerations. That how this great commission is indeed a great comfort for your people that it provides us assurance, that it provides us with promises, that it, yes, it provides us with instruction, and yet even those are assuring because you've given us the means to accomplish the task and not left us to our own devices. And so we seek after you, asking that you would indeed bless these means of grace as we've considered them and bless them to build up your people in assurance here and now tonight. And as we think going into the week before us, we pray that we might be full of that confidence and assurance. That the, that the hurdle to clear if, if we have, as we are going, if we have these opportunities is as simple as, would you go somewhere with me on Sunday? Help us to be bold, at least in that, in the opportunities you give us. Help us to sing this song about your leading, about your calling into ministry, that we would do it if you are leading, to depend on your leadership as you guide us through prayer, as you guide us through your word, through these means you've given.
We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.